If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We are going to be looking today at amazing grace as we remember Jesus in communion. You know, when you read the book of Ephesians, the Greek construction there is so full of excitement and so full of passion and so full of emotion, it's really hard to read it probably like Paul wrote it. He was pumped when he wrote this thing. He was ecstatic about what he was writing about. It obviously had changed his life, and he was writing to encourage these Ephesians so that they would know the excitement that was theirs over what God had done for them by his grace. And so in Ephesians 1, Paul captures that for them with these words, beginning in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for the excitement with which Paul wrote these words. He was a sinner saved by an amazing grace. And when he wrote about it to this church, he was writing for all of us to know what a gracious gift we've been given. And as we come to this table today to remember the grace that makes all this possible. May you help us to remember you in a way that will truly honor your name. And we thank you for this time together, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes when you are young and foolish, you make decisions and takes action, take actions that later on you wish you hadn't done and you'd have been better to think about it. I did that once, probably more than once, when I was in my 20s. In regards to a job I quit. I was working for a large international company, had a good job with them, but they had done something, made some decisions that I thought were unjust, and it directly affected my boss, who I appreciated, and so I decided I was going to quit, but I didn't just quit. I was going to write a letter to the president to make sure he understood what injustices had taken place under his leadership. So I had never met the president of this company, but he now knew my name. I wrote to him, told him exactly what I thought of him, the company, their decision, and all they were doing, and why I was going to quit, and I couldn't stand to be a part of a company who does these awful things. And I later came to find out I was wrong about everything I had assessed. Anyway, it was too late. Uh, that door was closed. The bridge was burned. That's why sometimes late, sometime later, you can imagine how surprised I was when the new head of our former division, called me up and recruited me to come back. 
And so when he called, I said, look, I know you're new and leading this division, but are you familiar with my letter? <laughs> he said, oh, yeah. But we've decided that that's not an issue. If you don't feel that way anymore, we'd like to have you back. I thought, wow. And so I was rehired. Now, I have to tell you, what those people did for me, I certainly did not deserve. I didn't earn that offer. In fact, after what I had done and what I had said, they should have offered me nothing except the door and don't come back. But instead, they offered me a better job. When people do things like that, that's called grace. You know you didn't earn it. You certainly know you didn't deserve it. But for some reason, they chose to forgive and offer something good in return. On a much grander scale, that's what God has done for me. That's what he's done for all of you. He's given to us grace, amazing grace. And it's amazing because it's given in ways that might surprise you. You see, the book of Ephesians is a letter of real Christianity. By the way, if you're a person that likes to have a marginal relationship with Christ, you like to ride the fence, kind of have a foot in the world and a foot in Jesus, I, I wouldn't recommend you read the book of Ephesians. This, this is a fence-knocking book. Uh, if you're a fence-sitter, it'll knock you off one way or the other. It's hard to read this. You either got to put it away and not read it, or you're going to be drawn in and say, I, I, I'm getting off the fence. This is the book of real Christianity. The first three chapters describe what a real Christian is. It's a person who has Christ living in them, and they can't be the same as they were when he wasn't. And the second three chapters talk about how real Christians live. And basically, it's summed up like this. You don't live anymore. You died when Christ came to live in you, and now it's not your life you're living, it's his life. In fact, he's living it in you, and he's living it through you. This is what the book of Ephesians focuses on. And in this book... Paul describes that this new relationship with God is purely an act of grace. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. In fact, it says in Romans 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners by nature and by choice. Paul will go on to say in chapter 2 of Ephesians that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead in them. Powerless to do anything about it separated from God now, and will be forever, as long as that sin remains in our lives. Now, God would have been fully justified to leave me in that sin. He would have been fully justified to leave you in it, but he didn't. He took action. Paul said, even before the world was made, he took action. Before he created anything, he took action and extended to us the grace that he knew one day would cost him the life of his own son. But he did it anyway. An act of grace, amazing grace. And that's the grace we're remembering today in communion. Communion reminds us of God's amazing grace. 
But what is it that his amazing grace has done? Paul got excited when he realized that this grace is what chose him to be God's son. God chose us to be his sons. We'll come back to that in a moment. And by grace, he redeemed us by his blood. Communion reminds us of God's amazing grace that chose us to be his sons. Here's the way Paul put it in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Garrison Keillor. He's an author, storyteller, humorist, and for more than 40 years, he was the radio host, national audience of the Prairie Home Companion coming out of Minnesota. Kind of homespun, down-to-earth stories from his childhood. In one of those stories, he was relating the childhood pain he had of always being chosen last for his baseball teams. Now, if you've been through this, you're going to connect with this right away. But here's how he put it. The captains are down to their last grudging choices. A slow kid for catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They chose the last ones two at a time. You and you over there. You and you over there. Because everyone knows it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they deal with us like handicaps. If I take him, then you got to take him. And if I take that one, you got to take this one. He said, sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first. I'd love to hear him say, him. I want him. The skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. I want him. You, come on. I want you on my team. But he never does. He never did. And I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. You ever been there? Wanting to be wanted? Doesn't matter what relationship you're talking about. You know what it's like to want to be wanted. And to wonder if you really are wanted. But you don't have to wonder anymore. Paul told these Ephesian Christians that God wanted you so much that he left nothing to chance. He chose you before he created the world. That's why Paul said in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he has predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will 
to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We don't have time to unpack all this, but what he's saying is basically this. Every blessing that belongs to Jesus Christ from the Father has now been bestowed upon you. And most of that is being kept in heaven for you to enjoy forever with him. That's the gift. He chose us for that in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before we were born or had done anything good or bad, before God even spoke a word of creation, he already determined and chose that you would belong to him and be holy and blameless. You'd be adopted as his sons. God made a choice in eternity past that we would be with him for eternity future. That's why Paul said in love he predestined us to adoption to sonship. And this sonship is powerful stuff. Whether you're a male or a female, regardless of gender, you need to know today that this sonship is as good as it gets. What it means is, as Paul understood and the Ephesians understood in that whole Roman biblical culture, the son, the firstborn son, is heir to everything. All the rights and privileges the father can give are bestowed on the ones who he calls son. So whether you're male or female, you now have that right in Christ. You've been adopted to sonship. Jesus is son by nature. You and I are sons by adoption. And we are co-heirs with Christ. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 8, verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you f live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And I love this. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. God's the best father I've ever known. Now, I don't care how good your dad was. I can assure you, God is a better father than you've ever known. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You live for him now. You're going to share in the glory then. Amazing. God did this in accordance with his pleasure and will. Paul said God wanted to do this. He chose us because he willed to do this. It was his pleasure and will to do it. The fact that you and I now, if you're a Christian... You are a son of God, a firstborn son with all the co-heir privileges of that. It's the fulfillment of his pleasure and will. This is why Paul went on to tell the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, 
You were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I belong to God, and so do you if you're a Christian. And by God's grace, he chose us before the world was made. People, we didn't earn this. We weren't even created yet. We didn't deserve it. We deserve death and hell because of our rebellion and sin against him. But God chose us as an act of pure grace. Paul said in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Communion reminds us of his amazing grace that chose us to be his sons. And not only grace that chose us, to be his sons, but communion reminds us of God's amazing grace that redeemed us by his blood. Look at verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This last week, I looked up an entry in the Guinness Book of World Records on the greatest ransom ever paid. Now, they had a long list of them in there, and most were in the millions, but one was in the billions. It took place in 1532 at Cajamarca, Peru, to Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro, who had kidnapped the Incan emperor Atahualpa. Now, the Incan people, the Incan people, desperate to get their emperor back, paid what was called at the time a hall full of gold and silver. It is estimated in today's dollars to have been the equivalent of one and a half to two billion dollars the Incan people paid to get their emperor back. And it's said in the Guinness Book of World Records, it's the largest ransom ever paid. And when I read that, I thought, wait a second, that is not right. That's not right. The greatest ransom ever paid wasn't paid to save Atahualpa from the Spanish conquistadors. The greatest price and greatest ransom ever paid was to save me and to save you. Because the greatest ransom ever paid was the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul told the Ephesians that in Jesus we have redemption and forgiveness through his blood. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And he did it with all wisdom and understanding. This word redemption that Paul used is the strongest form of the word he could use. It literally means to buy back or to buy out of to redeem back. But the word he's using is to buy out of slavery, 
to pay a ransom price that buys you out of slavery. Now, most people don't see themselves as captive to anything. Maybe we struggle with an addiction or two, but slavery? But what we don't understand is the Bible teaches that you are either a slave to sin and death, or you become a slave to obedience and righteousness and eternal life. You are a slave to something. Something's going to own you. It's one or the other. All of us at one time were slaves to sin. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, verse 16, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? You keep offering yourself to certain substances or addictions and other things or to unhealthy relationships or whatever, you become slave to whatever you're offering yourself to. So when you're offering yourself over and over again to sin, you become slaves to sin. That's why he said, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was a slave to sin, which always ends in death. Now I become a slave to God, which always ends in life. And God's done that now by grace. That redemption was through his blood. And we also have the forgiveness of sins. Not just redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That Greek word forgiveness is the word aphesis. We have an aphesis ministry here at our church. The word aphesis means release. Means being set free. In this case, Paul is saying, you have aphesis, you have freedom, you have release from sin. The penalty, the power, and eventually even the presence of sin. Imagine heaven. Not only the joy of God and fellowship with other believers, but sin will never be an issue again. Just imagine that. All this in accordance with the riches of God's grace, he called it, that he lavished on us. People, we didn't earn this redemption. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't pay for it and live. We could pay for it and die, but we couldn't pay for it and live. But God could. He paid it. Jesus died in our place with our sin so that we could live. We're redeemed through his blood. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Communion reminds us that was all according to the riches of his grace, his amazing grace. John Newton was born in England July 24th, 1725. He served in the British Navy, afterward became a notorious captain of slave ships. On a voyage in 1748 at the age of 23 off the coast of Donegal, Ireland, 
the ship encountered a severe storm and began to sink. John Newton, by his own description, was a wretched man captaining these slave ships. But, he said, he awoke in the middle of the night and began crying out to God to be saved. The cargo shifted in his boat, blocking the hole in the ship, and they started drifting safely to shore. Newton marked this as the beginning of his conversion, and on that same voyage back home, he began to read the Bible. And by the time he got back to England, he had given his life to Christ. The date was March 10th, 1748. He continued to work in the slave trade for a while, later repented and said, there was no true conversion in my heart until I could denounce the ugliness of the slave trade. He became an abolitionist and along with William Wilberforce helped to end slavery in the British Empire. Later he became an Anglican priest who powerfully preached the gospel of God's grace everywhere he went. And he wrote songs, one of which became the story of his life. It's called Amazing Grace. Listen to what he wrote. You've heard it many times, but listen to these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now, there is a closing stanza today, a fifth stanza to the song Amazing Grace. Everyone knows it. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Wonderful truth, but John Newton didn't write that. That was added later by John P. Rees, a fifth stanza. John Newton, when he was writing his life story of amazing grace, he ended the song like this. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. You see, that's why Paul would write to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. People, we, we didn't earn this, and we certainly don't deserve it. That's why it's called amazing grace. Grace that chose us to be adopted as his sons, grace that redeemed us by his blood. Paul called it glorious grace and riches of his grace. John Newton called it amazing grace. How about you? What do you call it? What words do you use to describe your response to God's grace? Whatever word you come up with, it will not be enough. Because you see, the real evidence of what grace means to you, the real evidence of what grace means to me, will be seen in the way we live. This is the grace we remember today in communion. The grace given by the one who said, this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. It's given for you. Therefore, whenever you eat it, remember me.